guys settled down too fast. I'm not quite ready. Good morning. Thank you. I want to start this morning with a story, and it's a story that most of you are going to be familiar with, um, but it's a story that takes place some 3,400 years ago. It's the story of God's people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through a series of events, the people of God have been held in slavery. As a matter of fact, for four centuries, think about it, four centuries, they suffered under the yoke of brutal slavery. But if you know the story, God intervenes and he sends the prophet Moses and Moses comes and through a series of miraculous events, through a series of miraculous events, the people of Egypt actually set the slaves free, set the Israelites free, and they actually give them a portion of their treasures, most of their gold and, and provisions for them along the way. So after centuries of brutal slavery, the people of God are set free. But the amazing thing is within just a few weeks, the people begin to grumble and complain. I mean, think about it. They've seen miracle after miracle. They have literally crossed a sea. God parted the waters and they crossed the sea on dry lands. Then they saw the waters pour back in, taking out the Egyptian army. They have seen miracle after miracle. During the day, they would travel and a pillar of cloud would go before them. At night, they would travel and a pillar of fire would go before them. Miracle after miracle. Yet, within just a few days, a few weeks, they begin to grumble and complain. God gives them everything they need. God literally sets them free through his hand, sets them free, and gives them everything they need to make this incredible journey across what's definitely a, a hard land, but everything they need. They literally have bread that just shows up for them in the way of manna. They have quails that just land in the So They have bread and they have meat. Everything they need to sustain them as they make this journey to a place called the promised land. But they begin to grumble and they begin to complain. They actually begin to say things like, didn't we have a better diet? when we were slaves. It's an amazing picture of ingratitude. The Bible says that nine different times the Bible tells us that they grumbled and they complained against God. You know, what we need to understand is God handpicked those people. God handpicked the Israelites to, and he provided everything they need, but he picked them to be his representatives. He picked them and he liberated them from everything, everything that they, the yoke of slavery they under, he liberated them and he picked them so that they could be his representatives. But their posture, their hearts left them grumbling and complaining. And in reality, it short-circuited the very work that God wanted to do in their lives. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the story in Leviticus, when I read through the Exodus, when I read about, about the, the people of, of Israel, I find myself saying things like, how could they be so dull? How could they be so blind? How could they be so self-absorbed? How in the world could people who see God moving in that spectacular of a way still be so hard-hearted, so self-absorbed? And then I hear the voice of God saying to me, Doug, you are just like the Israelites. Their story of, of rebellion is my story of rebellion. If I really listen to it, their story is my story. 1,500 years pass, and Paul, the, the author of Philippians, writes another letter, but this time it's to a church in Corinth. And he says in that letter, letter he says, this happened, the story of the Israelites actually happened to serve as a warning for you and I. 
the story of the Israelites, the story that I just told, exists to serve as a warning for you and I. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. The prayer throughout the whole week is that we would hear what you want us to hear, that we would do what you want us to do so that we would be who you want us to be. Lord, we want to be the church you've called us to be. We want to be the followers of Christ that you've called us to be. Lord, help us to hear what's from you. Help us to apply it into our own lives and help us to be the people you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So grab your Bibles, turn to Philippians 2. We're going to start reading in verse 12. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 12 through 18. I hope you brought your Bibles. I hope you're writing in your Bibles. Hope that you're taking notes. If what we learned from Kevin is true, if you're not taking notes, you're only going to remember 20% of what I say. So I guess I'd be all done by now. But grab your Bibles, open to Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. highlight of my day was that little baby sleeping on my shoulder. That was pretty cool. Philippians 2, 12 through 18, Paul says these words. He says, therefore, my dear friends, if you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you and to will and to act in order to fulfill his good pleasure. Verse 14, he says, Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, and a warped and crooked generation. Then, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, remember this is Paul writing, and he's talking about the possibility that he may actually die. Even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice of service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So too, you should be glad and rejoice with me. So we're in the middle of this series uh, through Philippians, and we're calling this series A Satisfied Life, that we have the opportunity to have more joy, we have the opportunity to have more contentment, we have the opportunity to have more courage in our lives, but like Paul, we are learning how to live into this. Paul actually says, through circumstances, through all circumstances, I have learned to be content. Paul just didn't accept Jesus and boom, his contentment was right there. He had to learn this. And together, we are learning how to be content in all circumstances. But one of the things we're finding out as we study Philippians is that this, this satisfaction, this contentment, this satisfied life has nothing to do with circumstances. It's not circumstantially driven. It has more to do with knowing God, knowing who God is, knowing how much God loves you, knowing how much God has done for you, having this deep understanding of God. So Paul writes earlier, he says, I pray for you that your love will abound more and more with knowledge and depth of insight. He's praying that you would know God more, that you would have this knowledge of God at such a level that it would help you to be content or satisfied in all circumstances. Paul had this obsession. His obsession was advancing the gospel. His obsession was always representing God in a way that brought glory to God. He never wanted to bring shame to the gospel, he'd say. So everything he did was from a filter of how do I live out my life in such a way that I am advancing the gospel. And he knew that he could trust God. He knew that God loved him. He knew that God had it all under control. So he could go through difficult, hard circumstances and still have this amazing level of contentment. 
we were challenged as we studied through this that we, you and I, are supposed to have the same attitude as Jesus. And that our response or our attitude has this tremendous effect on other people. We're going to see today more instruction, more encouragement on what and how we are to have this satisfied life and how it's going to affect others. And here's the fact. The fact is, if we miss what God has for us today, if we miss the teachings that come out of the scriptures we read today, then we run the risk, just like the Israelites, of short-circuiting the work of God in us and through us. We have the risk of short-circuiting the work of God in us and through us. So let's go back and let's unpack our scripture for today, starting in verse 12. So Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, if you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good pleasure. He starts with the word therefore. Anytime we see the word therefore, we need to be mindful of what was just said. It's there for a reason. It is therefore. So Paul's saying, because of what I just told you, or so then is the literal translation. So because of this, you need to do this. That's what the word therefore is going to do. So we have to immediately say to ourselves, well, what did we just talk about? So two weeks ago, I unpacked the scriptures before that. That's the passage that says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Remember, Jesus was... Equal with God all the way through. Never lost his divinity. Equal with God. But while he was with God, he had all of the privileges, all of the power, all of those things that come with being with God. All of the comforts, if you will, of being with God. But he didn't see that as something to be held on to. But he laid it down and he came to earth to be a slave. And the scripture says not just a slave, but he came to be a slave obedient to death. But not just any death, the most brutal death that anyone has ever faced, death on the cross. And he did all that. Why? So that you and I could be sons and daughters of God. So that his name would be above all names. Jesus came. So we have this beautiful picture of Christology that Paul writes for us. This this beautiful, uh, this poetic sort of way that he writes. And he says, after he writes all that, he says, Therefore, my dear friends. And I want you to hold on to the my dear friends too. Because I want us to remember that this is a letter of friendship. This is a letter of encouragement. Paul is writing to his closest friends. He's writing to his home church. He's writing to his buddies. I was going to say to his homies. But that always sounds funny when I say homies. He's writing... To his friends. And we just need to pick that up. So he says, therefore, because of everything Christ did, my dear friends, have you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even much more in my absence. This is amazing. What he's saying is, as you've always tried to do the right thing, and and you did it while I was there, but now that I'm gone, you're even doing it more. You're trying to be more obedient while I'm gone. I think that is super cool. Because let's be honest. That probably wouldn't be the way it goes for us. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine for a moment, and I know he's dead, but the Apostle Paul is here. That's why we have to use our imagination. But he actually comes. He's at church right now, and he's going to come home with you for lunch. The Apostle Paul, the actual Apostle Paul, is going to come home with you for lunch. Or maybe he's going to stay with you the whole week, and he's going to go to work with you. And he's actually going to commute to and from work with you as well. How many of us would have to make some behavioral modifications over the course of the week To not be embarrassed or to be ashamed of how we're acting, right? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, if he was coming over to my house this afternoon, I'm pretty sure I'd call Megan and say, hey, straighten up the house, tell the kids to be on their best behavior. The Apostle Paul's coming over, right? So, I mean, we we tend to change by who's in our presence. We we can sometimes think about it. But Paul's saying, look, you guys were great when I was there, but you were even more obedient when when I'm not there. It is a really cool thing. I remember on a, a few occasions 
uh, one of our kids would go stay at somebody's house and they would say to us, your child is so polite. <laughs> really. <laughs> you must, must, must have mistaken it for some other child. Or they'd even say, they got right up from the table and helped with the dishes. Look, they've never done that in my house, not once. But the beauty is something we've been teaching them along the way stuck, right? We've been kind of harping on them. Look, be polite when you're other. And so something's like they were actually better in somebody else's presence. Well, well and that we took great joy as parents. Paul is taking great joy that his spiritual children are living up to the things he taught them, even living into it with more obedience. So he says, even as you have always obeyed, and here's how you, you, you obey. He says, look at it. it. says He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we have to stop here. This is a very controversial sentence in Scripture. Lots and lots of debate over the centuries has been made over this one sentence. But we have to ask ourselves, what is Paul saying and what is Paul not saying? And we're going to start with what Paul is not saying. He is not saying work for your salvation. He is not saying you need to earn your salvation. The only way you can make that case is if you were to take this partial sentence, not even the whole sentence, if you were to take a partial sentence and pull it out and read it out of context. So if somebody is trying to convince you that there's this works mentality, that I need to work for the grace of God, they may use this passage as part of how they proof text it, but they would be taking it completely out of context. Because if you look right after that, Paul says, but it's God's will who does it through you. It's God who does the work. And the best way to interpret scripture is to let Scripture interpret itself. The weight of all of the Scriptures is how we know what Scripture is telling us. And what we know for sure is that Paul is doggedly obsessed with grace. He wants to make sure we all know, look, you don't get to earn anything. It's a gift. So he writes in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. He says, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. He couldn't be any clearer. He says, it's a gift from God, not by works. He's laying it out perfectly clear. And he says it's all this way so that no one can boast. Paul, the same guy who wrote this, work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling, also wrote about Abraham. He said, Abraham was the most righteous of all men, but he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed, he had faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't do anything. The most righteous man in the world couldn't earn his salvation, right? But he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul is not saying, no way, it's impossible for us to get that. He is not saying that you work to be saved or you work for your salvation. But what he is saying is, don't stop growing. He's saying, continue to live into this amazing calling you have in your life. The theological term that Paul is talking about here is sanctification. It's the process of becoming more and more and more like Christ. Growing up in our understanding of who Christ is. Growing up into our faith and being who God has called us to be. What's our mission statement here at Grace? We are... A mosaic, striving to live like Jesus. We strive together in community. We strive together to figure out how do we live out our faith? How do we live more and more like Christ? This striving together is the process of sanctification. It's all about working out and growing into this amazing privilege of being a son and a daughter of the Most High God. Here's the truth. Scripture is perfectly clear. When you accepted Jesus, when you made a decision to follow Christ and you accepted Jesus in, into your life, at that moment, you were made right before God. It is transactional. 
The words that, that are in Scripture make it very clear there was a transaction that took place and your guilt was shifted over to Christ and you became right before God. You became justified. You became just before God. Not because of anything you did, but because the work of Christ on the cross saved you. So you put your faith in Christ and then you are justified. But that's just the beginning. That's not the end. That's the beginning of a life in Christ where we begin to then grow in that understanding. We begin to peel away our old self and bring about this change in character and people begin to see Christ in us. We are justified in one moment and the rest of our lives is about sanctification. It's about growing up in every way into him who is Christ. We begin to peel away the old self, the old ways of thinking and the old mindset. So it's like the great theologian Shrek said, we are like onions. We come in layers. God is always working in our lives, peeling back those layers. And every layer that's peeled back reveals who he is in us more and more and more. We are striving together to live like Jesus. It's a process of sanctification. Here's a great litmus test for you, a great test for you just to think about. Just every time you can think about this, if you are really paying to, to attention to God in your life, if you're really paying attention to what God is doing in your life, you will always, always, always know what it is God is showing you about your life that he wants to peel away. You should always have an answer for this question. What part of your character, what part of your behavior, what part of your way of living is God showing you that isn't honoring him or isn't bringing glory to him? Where is he peeling back another layer? It's a great litmus test for you to say, am I cooperating with the Spirit? Because there's either two options. Either you are like Jesus, either you are like Jesus or you are becoming like Jesus and he's having to peel back the layers. So we should be able to say, God, where are you growing me? What are you showing me? It, it can come in all different places. It could be problems with, with, with sin characters. It could be problems with anger. It could be problems with trust. It could be problems with control. God's always showing me something that he's trying to peel back and we should be able to say, as I cooperate with the Spirit, and God does it in such a loving and gentle way. This isn't about shame. It's about becoming more and more like Christ. So we, you and I, are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? Fear and trembling. And again, this has been written on and talked about, but at its simplest terms, it just basically means that we are to do this with reverence and with seriousness. Paul is saying, look, be serious. Be sober-minded. This is a big deal. We need to realize that God has given us this incredible privilege. That the, the gift of salvation is a gift, but it's a gift for a reason. It's a gift to give us so that we can represent him. We are tasked with the job of making God known. God uses us to make him known, and we should take that seriously, and we should receive everything God has for us. We should be doggedly serious about having all that God wants us to have. This sanctification process should be serious. It means that we need to be very reverent and very serious. That's what the fear and trembling means. So we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and he says if you do this, one of the ways you do this is to look at verse 14, do everything without complaining or arguing. Yeah, that's easy. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Here's the theological reality. We are God's chosen people. We are the holy nation. We are the children of God. We are the one called to bring glory to God and make God known. And this is monumentally huge that we understand it. When we grumble and when we complain, when we argue, that attitude short circuits the work of God in us 
and through us. When we grumble, when we complain, when we have an argument in spirit, when our mindset is there, it short circuits the work of God in us and through us. Let me explain what I mean by short circuit. So this is just a light bulb. This light bulb really has no value at all without some type of power source, right? It's the power source that's going to turn this light bulb on. But in order for the power source to work, it needs to make a complete circus. Circus actually is taken from the word circle. It means that the power needs to run completely through it. Anytime that circle of power is broken or that power circuit is broken in some place, there's no longer power to the light bulb and the light bulb will no longer light up. It's just a piece of useless glass. So I decided to couple years ago to replace the fan in my bathroom. Sounds easy, right? Sure. Well, I got the new fan. I started to install it. I crossed some wires somewhere, Lord knows where, either at the switch or the fan, and half the house went dark. Half the house didn't work. So Phil Johnson spent two days at my house trying to track it back somewhere in the house where wires crossed. And when wires cross, (laughs) every time, Every time, when we, when we grumble and complain, we short-circuit the work of God in our life. And the fact is, this is not easy for us. The fact is, we are hardwired for this. We are conditioned to be whiners and complainers. Our consumeristic mentality makes us whiners and complainers. Our family of origin, if we just be honest with ourselves, makes us whiners and complainers. And the reason I started with the story of the Israelites is because We're not the first generation to struggle with it. That happened 3,400 years ago. Every generation since has struggled with whining and complaining. And Paul is using very specific language when he wrote this passage. He's very specific. When he talks about the complaining and arguing, it definitely harkens back to the Israelites. And then he talks about being blameless. And he talks about a crooked and deprived generation. Those words are taken directly from the prayer of Moses for the Israelites in Deuteronomy 32. So he's wanting us to look back. He's wanting us to learn from the Israelites. What we need to remember is God handpicked the descendants of Abraham. He chose them, not for the sake of his exclusivity, not for some sort of privilege, but to represent the living God, to make God known. They were chosen to be God's representation. And their behavior, their attitude, their grumbling and complaining about everything short-circuited the work of God in their lives. God did not do what he was going to do through them because they short-circuited what he wanted to do. They lost out on the very promises of God. They lost out on all of the privilege that was going to come to them. And Paul is making this, writing this letter to the church in Philippi, to non-Jewish people. The church in Philippi were not full of Jews. These were non-Jewish people. They were Gentiles. And he's making it clear that this amazing high calling, this literal vocational calling, this is your job, this is your vocation, has been transferred from the Israelites to the people in Philippi. It's been transferred from them to us. We are given the vocational calling of being the representation of the living God. Can you say amen to that? That is very cool stuff. So Paul says, do everything without arguing and complaining. Really? Everything? Like if he just said do some things, then maybe I would qualify. But he says do everything without arguing and complaining. And let's just talk for a minute about all the things we like to argue and complain about. What do we like to complain about? Well, the easiest one is the weather. 
It's been a rough winter, and we've heard a lot of complaints about the weather, right? And one of the authors I read said that when we complain about weather, we are in reality murmuring against God. He is the only one in control of the weather. He must know what he's doing. But when we grumble and we complain, we're murmuring against God. What about politics? Oh, my word, don't get me started on politics. But it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on. We complain, we argue about politics. It is the most volatile of things in our society. I think. But it's just, it's nasty, right? What about our work? This is fascinating. We complain when we have work and we complain when we don't have work. We complain when we have too little work and we complain when we have too much work. I've heard all of those complaints. I've probably been guilty of all of those complaints. We complain about our boss. We complain about our marriage. We complain about our boyfriends or girlfriends. Hopefully not at the same time. Those would be a different group of people. We complain about our singleness, so we complain about all of that. We complain about our schools. We complain about the teachers. We complain about our classmates. We complain about road conditions. Here's my favorite. We complain when we're hungry, and then we complain when we're full. Yep, I hear it all the time. We complain about our church, and we complain about other churches far too much. We complain about our home life. We complain when we have to get up. We complain because we're tired. We complain because we're bored, and we complain because we're too busy. We find hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things to complain about. It's part of our DNA. It's hardwired in us to be complainers. But the question we need to answer is, is how is this so destructive? Why does the complaining short-circuit the work of God in our lives? And the first thing we need to know is that when you complain, it is an absolute clear indicator that you don't have contentment. It proves to the outside world that you have no satisfaction. It makes it clear to all of the people around you that you are discontent. And remember, we already covered this, but people are watching you. Your kids are watching you. Your spouse is watching you. Your family members, your extended families are watching you. And here's the deal. The outside world is watching us. And when we have a grumbling and complaining spirit, you know what we're saying? Is the God that we serve has nothing to offer you. The God that we serve can't even help me. Why would he do anything for you? Our discontent is a horrible representation of the God that we serve. And it ruins our witness. It short circuits what God would have us do. I think it's fascinating that Paul is writing the letter of joy. Philippians is known as the letter of joy from a Roman prison. He's writing the letter of joy from a Roman prison. And at the same time, he's having this amazing impact on all the Roman guards. The Roman guards that are chained to him are coming to faith. They're learning about Jesus. And and everybody who comes to visit it is experiencing something in Paul that's, that's contagious. And they like it. Can I tell you, none of that would have happened if Paul had been in the corner whining and complaining. Nobody would have wanted to even come visit him, let alone would they have seen the gospel advance because his attitude would have, would have messed it all up. Now, now get this. If anybody had a right to complain, I think Paul did. Because we forget, Paul is doing exactly what Jesus told him to do. He's in total obedience and he's in prison. He's in total obedience and he's, he's in this dark, damp prison and he's facing what could quite possibly be the most brutal execution right? So he's in all of that, and he's writing the letter of joy. He's advancing the gospel because he's not arguing or complaining. Another way this short circuits the work of God in our life is it's a clear indicator of a lack of faith or a lack of trust. We are called to walk by faith, to trust in God's sovereignty, to be able to say to ourselves, whatever God takes me through, he must know what's best for me. To have that sense of God being at work in our life allows us to go through the difficult circumstances and helps others who are watching us to see us do this in a way that brings glory to God. Remember, to bring glory to God is what? To make 
God known. When we have this grumbling posture and we fail to, to, to really receive the very thing that God has given us, we short-circuit what God wants to do. So two weeks ago, Scott was here. I think that was two weeks ago. might have been three weeks ago. But when Scott was here, he talked about suffering. And what he taught us was that God allows suffering in our lives in order to produce something in us. That suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character. But you're required to persevere through the suffering if it's going to produce character. If you don't persevere and it doesn't produce character, then you suffer for nothing. So you can suffer and get what God wants out of you. And you can suffer in such a way that you bring glory to God and make God known to other people. Or you can just suffer. Those are the two choices. But we have this opportunity to experience God in a more profound way. And God uses that very thing to grow our character and make us more and more and more into the image of his son. To allow us to be a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. And here's the third thing that we need to know. Complaining, murmuring, arguing. It is a cancer that destroys morale. It is a cancer and it destroys morale. It destroys morale in your family. It destroys morale in your workplace. It destroys morale in a small group. It destroys morale on an athletic team. And it destroys morale in the church. The truth of the matter is that when I argue, when I complain, when I have a grumbling spirit, when I'm murmuring, it's like I'm taking bricks and I'm placing it on other people. I am taking the weight of my complaint and I am very neatly packaging it and handing it to other people. And I drag them down to my level. Sometimes I don't know that I need to complain about somebody until somebody informs me of what I need to complain about and then I have a reason to complain. You get it? We just share it. We just pass it along and it becomes this cancer and it brings the morale down in our homes, in our churches, in our workplace. Complaining is a cancer. One of the authors I read this week said, complaining opens the door to conflict. When we have this complaining spirit, there's more conflict. And thankfulness slams it shut. Another author, Elizabeth Elliot, wrote, a little leavening of dissatisfied, dissatisfied temper will spread through a group and change outlooks. How true is that? We begin to feed off of each other. We begin to become people who listen to each other's complaints and it becomes contagious. So grumbling and complaining short circuits the work of God in our lives. But I want to be clear here because I think this is really important. This does not mean that you cannot go through hard times, that you cannot recognize them for what they really are. Look, remember what did Jesus pray in the garden? That, 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 that this would pass, right? But he said, not my will, but your will. He, he wasn't exactly saying, hey, this is great. I can't wait to go to that cross. This is awesome. This isn't about praise the Lord and having a fake disposition on it. This is about being real with who you are, but not grumbling or complaining. I have no doubt that when Paul was in that prison, and he even says, I pray that God will allow me to leave. He's not praying to stay there. He's, it's okay that he says, I don't like it here. We're allowed to not like something. There's a big difference between having a dissatisfaction or having a, something in us that's, that's hard for us to understand and going to God and, and expressing that difficulty. There's a big difference between that and whining and complaining. And the best way I can explain this is to think about kids. So if you've ever had kids or ever been a kid or ever seen a kid, right? So that's all of you. You know the difference. You know the difference between expressing a desire or expressing a need and grumbling and complaining and whining. There is a monumental difference. And I don't think we need to unpack that anymore because in your heart of hearts, you know. You know when you're murmuring. You know when you're complaining. You know when you're arguing. We know the difference. St. Francis says, The truly patient man neither complains of his hard lot nor desires to be pitied by others. 
He speaks of his suffering in natural, true, and sincere ways. We want to be a church that's authentic. We want you to feel like you can share when things are difficult. I never want you to have to put on a, a fake face for us and say, oh, things are great, things are awesome. There's a difference between expressing a need or even expressing a fear or even expressing a difficult thing that you're going through and whining and complaining. They are very, very different. So I want to give you a little personal illustration. About two years ago, I think it was two years ago, um, I came to church because I work here, and I sat right over there, and um, I'll just be honest with you, I really didn't like the musical portion of that Sunday. I didn't like it at all. And the longer it went, the more annoyed I got, and the more, uh, yeah, annoyed I got. And most of the reasons I didn't like it, most of them looking back were selfish reasons. But I began to grumble and complain. I'm so thankful I didn't talk to anybody. It's just me and God. I'm not sure God's thankful. But I just started complaining to God, like, like really? And here's what I was saying things to myself. Like, like I work here. Uh, the worship arts department reports to me. Why do I have to sit through something I don't even like? Right? And I had all these I sentences that I was saying to myself and saying to God, I this, I that, wah, 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 baby, baby, baby. Right? You get it? So I'm going at it with God. And then just by circumstance, we, we happened to have some people coming over for lunch that day. So I had to get home. And I start barbecuing. I'm standing outside at the barbecue. And this, this younger couple who's coming over for lunch walk up the driveway. And before I even say hello, they look at me and say, that was the best worship service we have ever experienced. <laughs> I actually made him say it again. I said, what? They said, that was the best worship service I've ever experienced. Maybe what happened on that Sunday had more to do with my heart and my attitude than it did with the song choices or the style of music or the volume or whatever other reason I was whining and complaining to God. The point is, I missed what God wanted to do that Sunday. I short-circuited what God wanted to do that Sunday because I was grumbling and I was complaining. My complaint short-circuited what God wanted to do. I want to encourage you a little bit. Uh, this has all the, the makings of a good guilt-producing sermon. <laughs> right? It's very easy for us to move into shame mode, and that's not my intention. This, we are all guilty of this at some level. It's just part of our DNA. It comes to us very naturally. And we are in the process of growing into the things that we're teaching through Philippians. I don't think any of us can say, I never argue, I never complain. This is something we need to grow into. But let me just encourage you with this. We can respond this way. We can respond this way as the people of God. And when we do, we will advance the gospel and unleash the power of God in our lives. Look at verse 15. I love this. So Paul is saying, if you do these things, he says, do everything without arguing and planning, so that. So that means because if you do this, this is what will happen. So that you may become blameless and pure. Remember, to be blameless means that you don't cause anyone else to stumble. Whenever you read the word blameless, you can remind yourself, oh yeah, that's so that I don't put some type of hurdle in front of somebody else. I don't live my life in such a way that my kids sin. I don't live my life in such a way to cause my wife to stumble. I don't live my life in such a way that people that go to this church are going to stumble. I am blameless if my my life doesn't cause you to have difficulty walking with God. So we do these things, no arguing and complaining, so that we can be blameless and pure, children of God in a warped and crooked generation. Don't need to explain that. And then it says, then you will shine among them like stars in the heaven. You will shine among them like stars in the sky. Fact is, this is not how the world responds. This is not normal. This is not fit the social norms. But when we resist, when we have joy in all circumstances, when we don't have this argumentative, controlling, uh, uh, complaining spirit, 
The world takes notice. They see it. As a matter of fact, the passage says, when we do this, we shine like stars in the sky. The light bulb goes on. The power goes through and we illuminate. We actually make God known. We are light in a dark place when we don't argue and we don't complain. Now remember, this is not about self-promotion. It's not about doing this so that you get noticed. It's about doing this so that your life reflects on the glory of God, so that God gets noticed. This isn't about you shining like stars. It's about you being light in a dark place so that people know God and people receive what God has for them. The truth of the matter is, have you ever had a friend that, that models this? Have you ever had a friend that's just got that gentle spirit, never says a harsh word about anything, not, never argues, never complains. They just have a sweet spirit. Look, those people are a breath of fresh air. They are great to be with. We probably all are picturing somebody right now. That, oh, yeah, I love being with that person. It stands out. You stand out when this is a part of your DNA. Here's a few things for us to think about. When you are focused on your own interests, All of this comes out of Philippians. When you are focused on your own interest and not the interest of others, you will gravitate towards arguing and complaining. When you are looking to people or your church to serve you, you will gravitate towards arguing and complaining because we can never serve you enough. We will never satisfy you. Your spouse will never serve you enough. When you have the idea of a person who's doing, being served, you will gravitate towards arguing and complaining. You are called as the one to serve. But when we get that backwards, we become people who argue and complain. I thought it was very profound last Sunday when Kevin and Norflet were talking about coming to worship with your song. It's not whether or not you can sing. It's whether or not you have a song. That's a, a powerful thing that Norflet has already taught me. But the point is, I think it's a paradigm shift even for me, and I think I always knew this, but I'm not sure I ever knew it. If I come to church with my song already in my spirit, if I've spent the week in worship, and if I walk into this place and I can't wait to give back to the Lord, to serve the Lord in song, it's going to be totally different. But so often I come waiting to be served. Entertain me with the worship. Lead me somewhere. Get me to where I need to be, guys. Lead me in that worship. Serve me, serve me. And if I just had that shift of coming to worship, not just to to, to worship God, not just to serve God, but to serve you. How different our worship service would be if we had that sort of mentality. I thought it was incredibly profound. So thank you for that, guys. Okay, also, if you are not focused on advancing the gospel... If you don't have it front and center, the way Paul was always concerned about God's reputation, he was always concerned about bringing glory to God. He never wanted to bring shame to God. He never wanted to do anything that brought shame to the gospel, he would say. So he lived his life with a clear focus of advancing the gospel. When we don't have that, we will gravitate towards arguing and complaining. But here's the deal. If we as a church are focused on Jesus... If we understand this amazing high calling that we have to be sons and daughters chosen by God, liberated by God, set free by God for the sheer purpose of making God known, then we will do everything without arguing or complaining. And people will see God. Amen? So I want to clarify something. Philippians is not a behavioralism book. It's not a book on do's and don'ts. And the thing about Philippians, it'd be so easy, is there's so many just good commands in there that we can write down in the list. Do everything without arguing and complaining. You put a little box by that, and you can measure your day to the end of the day. So, well, you know, I 
halfway through, whatever. You can make it, you know, uh, don't look to your own interest, but also look to the interests of others. I can make that just a command. I could just write it down as a list of to-dos. This looks like behavioralism if you're not careful, but it is not behavioralism. This is about unleashing the power of God in your life and living into something that is supernatural. It's about becoming more and more like Christ. You cannot do this on your own. Look at verse 13. This is uh, my favorite part of the passage that we've read today because I just think it's liberating. He says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Your heavenly Father loves you beyond your wildest imagination. You are his son. You are his daughter. And he gives you everything you need to, to, to move into this. And it gives him pleasure when you do it. In the same way that you look at your own kids and you see them doing something and it makes you proud and it makes you glow inside. It makes you so, it's so awesome to see your kids. God is looking and it gives him pleasure when we live this out. But the thing that I love is it says, it's God who works in you. The words who works in you is one word in the Greek, and the word is energine. It's the word we get energy from. It means to put one's capabilities into actions. It is God who puts your capabilities into action. It is God who gives you the energy. It is God who is the power that's running through those cables that lights up the light bulb. It is God who gives us what we need to be the very thing he's called us to do. We don't have to figure out how to do this on our own because we have the living God, because we have the Spirit of God inside us. All we have to do is lean into God and say, I can't do this, Lord, but help me to become more and more like your son and do everything without arguing and complaining. It is God who makes it possible. It is God who gives us what we need to do a life without arguing and complaining. It is the Spirit of God living in us and working through us that makes all of this possible. Not self-help strategy, but a dependence on the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful for this passage. I'm grateful for the work that you're doing uh, in us and through us. Lord, thanks for putting us on a journey. Lord, I pray that we would take it seriously. I pray that we would approach our sanctification with fear and trembling, with reverence and seriousness. Lord, I, I pray that we would be looking for other places where we can plug in so that you can, can show us more, where we can grow. I pray that we would be in the word trying to grow in, in you. I just pray that we would be serious about being transformed into the image of your son. Lord, help us to be the church you've called us to be. How sweet it would be to be a church that was known for their attitude. That church has the attitude of Christ Jesus. I never hear anybody there arguing or complaining or grumbling. How cool would it be if that were our reputation? Lord, help us to live into these amazing passages that you've given us through Philippians. Help us to be who you've called us to be. Help us to hear what you've called us to hear. Help us to do what you've called us to do and help us to be who you want us to be. Thank you for your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Hey, I have a special request for you today. Um, we, in your bulletin is a little card. I think it says getting to know you. They took it away from me again. They did that last service. I can't show it to you. Should be a little card. Somebody got a bulletin, open it up, take out the little card. Every single person needs to have one of these cards in their hand. So the, the ushers are right here. If you do not have a card, raise your hand and they're gonna give you one. And if you need a pencil, raise your other hand and they'll give you a pencil. So if you got two hands up, you need a pencil. If you got one hand up, you need a card, something like that. So you got people here who need a card. Here's what we're doing. You can't leave until you fill out this card. Well, I can't make you do that, 